Your Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 17. And this evening we're continuing our subject on the subject of the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. Our first lesson on this was back, way back at the beginning of July. And I told you then that even though we're talking about events in the future empire of the Antichrist, yet many of the things that we're talking about right now, they're as current as your newspaper, as things that you see on TV, things that are happening around you right now. The foundation for the greatest apostasy that the world has ever seen is being laid, even while we're talking about this subject tonight. Now, I'm not one who would predict when the coming of the Lord will be. I can't tell you how long that's going to be. I'm not going to try to do so. But I can't believe in some ways that it could be much longer because many of the things that we see happening in the world today actually couldn't have, um, couldn't have taken place until the world was like it is today. And I'll explain that statement in just a moment. Uh, well, you go back in history and you'll find that Martin Luther was puzzled by the book of Revelation. He said that it was non-prophetic and was not apostolic. John Calvin said that the book was canonical, but he never actually wrote a commentary about it. Now, Luther later changed his mind, and both of those men, Luther and Calvin, had great consternation over the book of Revelation, and one of the reasons was because they couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't understand uh, how these events could be supported by the Scripture. Well, today I think we have a much different view of it because it's easier for us to see how that news can travel around the world very quickly. Uh, the world is connected with electronic media. We have a global economy. The lines between nations are now blurred. We have a world court. We have international peacekeeping forces, or at least that's what they say they are. But going back to the days of Luther and Calvin and the Puritans and the Protestant Reformation, I think it was much more difficult for them to decipher uh, what we're seeing in the world today and decipher the book of Revelation. And so I think that we've seen a rise of premillenary eschatology, which is what we believe, the premillennial return of Christ and so forth, uh, because we see that prophecy actually more clearly now. And so I think what God is doing for Bible believers, for Bible-believing churches, is that he's actually revealing a greater understanding of this as we get closer to his coming. Now, having said that, the Reformers unanimously saw a role for Roman Catholicism in the end times. Now, they, almost without exception, believed that the popes of Rome were the Antichrist. And uh, there were times when there was a pope that was particularly heinous, and they believed that he was the actual one person who's the Antichrist. Now, the Reformers, as I said, don't, I don't think understood it as much as we do now, but they were definitely right about this. There is a role for Roman Catholicism in the end times. Uh, in the tribulation time, all of the world's religions will gather together a- into a conglomeration along with apostate Christianity, and that will be the leader. And the largest body of apostate Christianity that we have in the world today is none other than the Roman Catholic Church. And so they'll head up this entire coalition of religions and they will support the policies of the Antichrist. So the Roman Catholic churches actually will be, part, will be somewhat responsible, I should say in a large part responsible, for the rise of the Antichrist to power. And then when she and her cohorts think that they are safely in control and they are reigning and have power with the Antichrist, 
that's when he'll cut down and destroy her. Now, let's read our text verses again, and then I'll make a few comments um, about things that we've already talked about, then we'll go on to something new. Why don't we just stand up for just a moment and read these verses, verses 1 through 6 again. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk, with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, just before we pray that sixth verse, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We're going to talk about that verse specifically next week in our message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to meet together tonight. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just those who are interested in your word. And it's great to see such a good number out for Sunday evening services. Bless us as we look into the word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The key verse, as I've stated in the previous messages concerning the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon, is verse number 5. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. Now, Mystery Babylon is what indicates the spiritual nature of this huge conglomerate. Now, there is both a political side and an ecclesiastical side to Babylon. We're talking now about the ecclesiastical side, the religious side, and it's the religious part that helps the Antichrist gain control in the first part of the tribulation. And this is called Babylon because the roots of this religion go all the way back to, the, uh, to ancient history and the time when Babylon first became a kingdom. And we've concentrated on Roman Catholicism in particular because the Roman Catholic Church is actually a continuation of that old Babylonian system. And so we could actually look into Catholicism today and we've got an idea of what the religion of the Antichrist is going to look at or look like. And so if you really want to know more about Revelation 17, where you need to go is where the Pope sits. And that's what we're doing in this study. Now, let me briefly just give you the headings of the, of the previous messages. We first talked about the preparation of the Roman church. And in that part, we were looking at the ancient empire of Babylon. We saw how that their religion centered on the worship of, of, uh, of an of a idolatrous system, uh, Nimrod's wife, uh, Semiramis was the priestess of that, high priestess of that, and her son was Tammuz. And Semiramis and her son have been known by many different names throughout history. In uh, other cultures, she was known as Ashtoreth, and then her son was Baal. Uh, She is Aphrodite, and her son Eros. She's Venus, and her son was Cupid. And in the Roman Catholic system, she's the Virgin Mary, and her son is named Jesus. Now... 
This is the mother-child cult worship that started with the ancient Babylonians and it's been carried through under many different names all through history. And the doctrines of that old system have actually been Christianized. Now, we don't find any support for those doctrines that are in the, in the scriptures at least, but, but the Bible, finding things in the Bible, has never really been a huge barrier for Roman Catholicism. Now, there's some doctrines that they claim that they do support by the Bible, which they interpret things wrongly. But much of the practices, many of those of Roman Catholicism, actually come out of this old Babylonian system, the paganism of it. And so the Babylonian system, system continues today under the banner of Roman Catholicism. Number two, we talked about the power of the church. Verse number one says that this woman sits on many waters, upon many waters, and that means that there are many different people groups that are actually brought under her control. And if you look at the Gentile nations of the world, there's scarcely any Gentile nation that has not at some time or another or even today been closely or sometime related with Rome, to Roman Catholicism, affected by it, or her associates like the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Episcopal Church. Verse number 2 tells us how that kings have consorted with her. And today, the Roman Catholic Church is the only religious entity that is an autonomous country and has diplomatic relations with other countries of the world. I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen this before. I haven't. I've never seen the President of the United States bow down and kiss the ring of the Russian President. But I have seen both of them bow down and kiss the ring of the Pope. They call him Holy Father. One time, the Roman Catholic Church crowned and deposed kings. Roman Catholicism started with an emperor. That's when Constantine tried to placate uh, pagans with Christians, or placate both sides of that, pagan side and the Christian side of his empire, brought them all together, and he started the Roman Catholic Church. And so you have these apostates. All of that begins with Roman Catholicism, and it doesn't never has strayed too far from the political aspect of it or the desire to have political power. Number three, as we looked at the prosperity of the Roman church, verse four says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And we looked at how the Roman Catholic church is the richest church in the world colors that John speaks about here, the purple and the scarlet, were, were symbols of wealth in his day. Both of these colors were very costly to obtain. They were symbols of regality. And when the College of Cardinals gathers together, when you see that great sea of red when they're all together, uh, that's a, just an idea of what he's talking about here, the colors of Roman Catholicism, which is oddly um, significant, if you think, when you look at that sea of red in the College of Cardinals, that they're actually the ones that have shed more blood in the name of religion than any people in the world. The artwork and the gold and the real estate holdings of Roman Catholicism are staggering. And much of that was gained by trafficking in the souls of men. And so in the Roman system, souls are bought and sold in and out of purgatory. Forgiveness of sins is a commodity just like a bushel of wheat. Glance over to chapter 18 for just a moment, if you will. Uh, chapter 18 concerns the fall of the political system, but the ecclesiastical portion is entwined with that. Now, I want you to look here at verses 11 through 13 for just a moment. This is just a 
description as the, as the city begins to fall. It says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thyang wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beast and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the Babylonian system... They sell the souls of men. I mean, it's really no different than horse trading. Selling sin is a part of Rome's money-making scheme, and it has been for centuries. So you have all these huge cathedrals that have been built throughout the world, and it comes at the expense of selling the souls of men. Souls are sold like a commodity. Well, the parallels of the future Babylonian uh, system when the Antichrist comes to power and what we see in Roman Catholicism are striking. And so that's why we're looking at Roman Catholicism. And folks, the the sad part about this is that all of this is happening less than a mile from us. All the things that we're talking about. Now let's go into the fourth part of our study. Number four, we're going to talk about the perversions of the Roman church. Now all of it is perversion. I mean, there's scarcely anything that you find in Roman Catholicism that hasn't been perverted. But the main intent that I have here is to show you how that Catholicism is a perpetuation. The doctrines are a perpetuation of that ancient Babylonian system. And, and in many cases, the doctrines have only been slightly altered. So that if we were transported back to the time of Nimrod or back to the time of the Egyptian pharaohs, back to the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire... As it existed at that time, back to Nebuchadnezzar, back to uh, the, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, back to the old Roman system, you'd feel like you'd never left home because the same stuff that was happening then is happening just a few blocks away from us. You see, the beautiful ornate churches with all of the idols that adorn the buildings, the Virgin Mary is Semiramis, Jesus is Tammuz, and a quick name change is all that separates all of this. Now, the list of perversions is long, so I'm only going to pick out a few of them. And I want to start with this one, because this was, this was the one that was kind of a, a shock to the system as I was reading about this, and I read to you what W.A. Criswell had to say. And uh, this first one I want to talk to you about is Easter and the Egg. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Let me read the quote, part of the quote from Criswell again. And I'm breaking into the explanation that he gives of of how Semiramis is associated with Mary and Tammuz is associated with Jesus. He says, The cult of the worship of mother and child spread throughout the whole earth. She was worshipped by the offering of a wafer, a little cake, to her as the queen of heaven. And there was always 40 days of Lent, of weeping over the destruction of Tammuz before the feast of Ishtar, at which time his resurrection was celebrated. That is the resurrection of Tammuz. The sign of Tammuz was an Ishtar egg, a symbol of resurrection to life. Now we actually get the term Easter from Ishtar. That's in Egyptian mythology. And we also, uh, and that represents... uh, Uh, Semiramis, that's Isis in Egyptian uh, mythology. And we also get it from the uh, Anglo-Saxon word eostra. And that word means the same as Venus. So 
we have this word Easter that we're dealing with now. Now, maybe you didn't realize it, but the word Easter is mentioned only one time in the New Testament. And this is in Acts chapter 12, verse number 4. Let me read this to you. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, what's happening here? This is a story of how that Peter was captured or taken and put in prison by Herod. And he had plans to kill Peter, just as he had previously done to the apostle James. And in this passage, we see the word Easter which is not really a a good translation because, first of all, it doesn't refer to the resurrection of Christ. And, of course, this time period is after Christ was crucified. It doesn't refer to that, but neither does it refer to the Babylonian worship of the Queen of Heaven. Neither one of those things are considered here. So the word in the Scriptures, Easter, should actually have been translated as Passover because the Jews took a break at Passover time, and so that wasn't really the best time for for Herod to kill him, to kill Peter. So if it weren't actually for that mistranslation, we would never have the word Easter in the Bible. Well, the question would be then, so is it wrong to celebrate Easter? Well, we've the only thing that we're really wrestling with at this point would be using the word Easter, just the terminology of it. Because there's no question that when we speak of Easter, we are talking about the resurrection of Christ, and we're not uh, talking about Passover. And even though Easter is close to Passover, we're not celebrating Passover. So we're not thinking of that, and we're not thinking of Babylonian festivals. We're thinking about the resurrection of Christ. And we know that Christ did arise at this time of the year, or the Easter time of the year. So the Easter... Uh, celebration or celebration of, I should say, Passover, the celebration of Passover was timed according to the phases of the moon. And it varies on whether you have a, a full moon after, the time of Easter depends on the full moon after the vernal equinox. Now, how many of you know what the vernal equinox is? All right, some of you do. Well, in case you don't know what the vernal equinox is, this is when the sun is equidistant from the equator and so that night and day are equal. And that happens only two times a year. One time at the, the first time at the vernal equinox and then later at the autumnal equinox. So you determine Easter based upon those phases of the moon or that time of the moon, those particular, the vernal equinox. And Passover is determined in the same way. Only Easter is determined according to the Gregorian calendar and the Passover is determined by the Hebrew calendar. So that, that's where you come into these differences. So Sunday, uh, uh, Easter is always on a Sunday because Christ arose on a Sunday. So if you want to quibble over the name, you might. And uh, if, if that bothers you to call it Easter because of these other connections, then if you want to refer to it as Resurrection Sunday, that would be all right. And there are people that don't like to use the word term Easter or the term Easter. They call it Resurrection Sunday, which, which is fine. Now, on the other hand, as we're looking at Easter eggs, those are definitely tied to Babylonian worship. And the practice of of Easter eggs has just been Christianized so that they say that it refers to the resurrection of Christ. But But Easter eggs, or the egg in general, has no connection at all, has no symbolism in the Bible to a resurrection. It's never that. So it refers actually... Uh, the, the Easter egg, the, the origins of it actually come from the ancient practices, practice of using eggs and worshiping in it one of two ways. Now, one would be as a symbol of the resurrection of Tammuz. 
And that would, of course, correspond to, in, in this um, Roman Catholic system, of the resurrection of Jesus. So they're just carrying through the resurrection of Tammuz. But on the other hand, what's more likely is that it refers to uh, Semiramis and her birth. Now the story is that there was an egg that fell from heaven and it fell into the Euphrates River. The fish pushed the egg up on the shore. Then doves came and they settled on that egg, sat on it, and hatched the egg. And out came Isis. Uh, She came out of this egg. And because the egg came down from heaven, she's been called the queen of heaven. Well, those kind of connections just started to become too obvious to me. I mean, that became too close to this cult worship of of uh, Mary and Jesus that's carried out and perpetuated by the Roman system. Now, uh, another question you might ask, well, do I think that churches that do Easter eggs and all those kinds of things, are those, are those people being pagan? Are they pagans? Well, the answer to that is obviously no. I don't think that, I mean, there are a lot of Baptist churches do that, and, and we've done it in the past. Does that make us pagans? Well, I don't think we're pagans, but I think that we need to be very concerned about that history of it that it just helps carry forward that, that Babylonian system that's perpetuated by Roman Catholicism. Well, another question would be, is there anything, anything wrong with decorating an egg? No, you can color all the eggs that you want to. Eggs are not moral, they're not immoral, it makes no difference at all. But if you tie that to the resurrection of Christ, and you say that is a symbol of Christ being resurrected, then you've gotten into the ancient Babylonian worship, because it has nothing to do with Jesus arising from the dead. So that's all too close for comfort for me. I mean, this Roman Catholic system... So as far as I'm concerned, and I told you this the last time that we talked about it, Easter eggs are history with Berean Baptist Church. Well, I want to look at two other... (laughs) I repent in sackcloth and ashes. All right, let's go along. Let's go here then uh, to uh, two other doctrines that I want to look at that are very closely... Uh, connected to this. They have no biblical support and you can take this all back to the Easter egg and all of that. And that is the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary. Now most people do not understand, most people like us, I think the Roman Catholics probably understand it, but most people do not understand that the Immaculate Conception does not refer to Jesus, not to the birth of Jesus, but it refers to Mary. It refers to her birth. And what it means, the Roman Catholics believe that Mary was born without original sin. And they teach that Mary uh, lived her whole life without ever sinning. So that, uh, that, that, that sinless perfection that Mary had continued all throughout her life. Now, you may not realize this, but what happens when you teach something like that is you are elevating Mary to God status. Because the reason that Jesus was born of a virgin was so that the sin nature wouldn't be passed to him. And so that's saying if Mary is born without original sin, it means that she has the same nature as Jesus. That she is in nature like Jesus who is God. And what do you find in the mother-son cult worship? Well, it's believed that Ishtar is the queen of heaven. She came directly down from heaven. She came out of the Ishtar egg And so it doesn't take much of a stretch to say that Mary was born sin-free and she is God's gift from heaven. Now, it's sort of like Jesus asking the Pharisees, uh, 
you know, he had, he had them in a spot. And he, and he asked the Pharisees when they were talking about John the Baptist, he said, where did John's Baptist, John the Baptist's baptism come from? Was it from, from heaven or was it of men? And the Pharisees knew that that was a problem for them because, as the Bible says, they, the people counted John as a prophet. So they didn't want to answer that question. They didn't want to say that it, that it um, was of men, and they didn't want to say it was from heaven because then they would admit that John the Baptist was telling the truth and repenting from sin and all of that. So Jesus had him in a quandary there. Well, the same thing is true if you ask a Roman Catholic. If you were to ask a Roman Catholic, where did Mary's sinless nature come from? Is it from heaven or is it from men? Well, what are they going to say? Well, it must be that it came from heaven. And so it's easy again to translate that to Mary is the queen of heaven. Now, for all of that... There's not one word of biblical support. So it comes from where? It comes from Roman Catholic tradition. And where does Roman Catholicism get many of its traditions? From pagan practices. So let's go on here. Then what about this other doctrine, the assumption of Mary? What's that? Well, that's the doctrine that Mary saw no corruption, that she was taken up into heaven in her body. So Mary didn't die and was buried and and put in the grave. And then like all the rest of us, she has to wait until the resurrection to receive a glorified body. Now that's what Paul says for for us who are Christians when we die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that we wait the resurrection of the body. And then our bodies will be glorified and made fit for heaven. But the Roman Catholic doctrine is that Mary was already fit for heaven. And in her body, she ascended into heaven. And so she's there in heaven today with her body. Now, folks, again, that gives her God status. She's taken into heaven in her body. Now, don't let anybody tell you that Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholics are Trinitarians. They believe in the Trinity. They have at least four gods, at least four. And the most prominent of of all of them is Mary. Now, here's another of Rome's perversions that's as old as Babylon, and that's the doctrine of purgatory. Rome's... Doctrines are insidious because at the same time that they claim to be orthodox and they say that it's Christ's blood who cleanses, that cleanses us from sin, they turn right around and they deny that with doctrines like purgatory. Purgatory comes from the Latin word which means to purge. And so people go to purgatory to be purged from their sins. And that's what suffering in purgatory is about. So if you have to suffer for your sins in purgatory, you have to be finally purged there, then the question is, what did the blood of Christ do? What was the purpose of that? Well, at best, it wasn't good enough to take you into heaven because not only was Christ punished for sin, but you have to be punished as well. And so what that does, it denies the value of the atonement. It confuses justification and sanctification. It makes a mockery of Christ in a hundred different ways. Well, does purgatory come from the Scriptures? No. But you will find it in Babylonian worship. Now the Babylonians believed that the dead could be cleansed and they could reach a higher state. And you know how? This is the interesting part. Well, it's all kind of interesting, I think. But here's how they do it. A person who... A person's family could pay a cultish priest to pray for that person who had died. And through those prayers, they would charge for those prayers, and then that person 
could reach that higher state in the afterlife. Now, the thing about it is, only priests could pray those prayers. Now, any of you that have a Roman Catholic background, did you ever hear of a priest ever collecting a dollar for somebody in purgatory to kind of help out with the suffering there? Where does it come from? It comes from the Babylonian system. And on it goes. You have prayers for the dead. You have lighting of candles that are symbols of the prayers for the dead. Uh, Extreme unction. People being anointed with oil for that final trip and the giving of last rites and all of that. Roman Catholicism claims it comes from the Bible. But in fact, the Babylonians did the very same thing. They did it in the worship of Beelzeman, who was known as the Lord of Oil. And that's why they put oil on dying people. Now, the fourth one, or, yeah, this is the fourth one that I want to talk to you about is, and, I, and I, uh, I'll give some credit here to the Irvines for bringing this to my attention a few weeks ago, and so I did a little bit of looking into this matter, and that's the scapular. What is a scapular? Well, let me, let me read, just to show you that I'm not making things up, I'm going to read to you from the uh, Roman Catholic, or the Catholic Encyclopedia, so we'll just get the description from there. It consists essentially of a piece of cloth about the width of the breast from one shoulder to the other, that is about 14 to 18 inches, and of such a length that it reaches not quite to the feet in front and behind. There are also shorter forms of the scapular. In the middle is the opening for the head, the scapular thus hanging down from two narrow connecting segments resting on the shoulders. Originally, the longitudinal segments of cloth were connected by cross segments passing under the arms, a form which exists even today. In former times, also two segments of cloth hung over the shoulders, which they covered and thus formed a cross with the longitudinal segments over the breast and back. Now that's their description of what this is. And the first challenge I have for you is to find any of that in the Bible. I, there's nothing like that there. But the scapular is this garment that's, that's worn by the priest. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the scapular helps keep the priest from temptations. Now, I don't know what they're doing about all these pedophiles and all of that. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But you have all these scapulars that they wear, and there's different types of those, and they all have special significance. Now, some of you may have heard of a man called Charles Chinnicky. How, how many have ever heard of him? Well, he was a Roman Catholic priest uh, for 25 years, and he wrote a book entitled 50 Years in the Church of Rome. Now, I'm not quoting directly from his book here, but I want to quote from uh, J. Hampton Keithley, who mentioned Chinnicky in his book on Revelation. The reason I'm quoting from him, because he, he puts the whole story together in a, in a little different form. But he says, Charles Chinnicky, a man who was 50 years in the Roman church and 25 years a Roman priest, said, it was certainly our desire as well as our interest to believe them. Now he's talking about the dogmas, the precepts, the practices of Rome. But how our faith was shaken and how we felt troubled when Livy, Tacitus, Cicero, Virgil, Homer, etc. gave us evidence that the greater part of these things had their root and origin in paganism. Of course, he meant by this, Mystery Babylon. He then went on to give an illustration and told how they had been told to trust in the scapulars the sleeveless outer garment of a priest or monk, in metals and holy water, etc., because they would keep them safe and aid in battling the temptations of life. 
But how again their faith was shaken when in the reading of the Greek and Latin historians, they found the same things involved with the worship of Jupiter, Minerva, Diana, and Venus, the mother-child cult. He said they asked each other, fellow students, the question. These are Roman Catholic priests studying for ministry, and they ask each other the question, what is the difference between the religion of heathen Rome and that of Rome today? More than one student would answer, the only difference is the name. The idolatrous temples are the same. The idols have not left their places. The incense still burns in their honor. Instead of calling this statue Jupiter, we call it Peter. And instead of calling another Minerva or Venus, we call it St. Mary. It's the old idolatry coming to us under Christian names. So perversion after perversion is found in Roman Catholicism. Much much of it comes from that attempt by Constantine to placate both the pagans and the Christians and in this invention of a religion of the empire. So you have 1,600 years of Catholicism and they just keep adding and adding and adding to Mystery Babylon. And folks, that one day, one day, all of that is going to be absorbed into the religion of the Antichrist. But I suppose one of the most blasphemous doctrines that you find in Roman Catholicism is our fifth one, and that is the Mass. And it'd take a long time for us to unravel all the mysteries of the Mass and the perversions of the body and blood of Christ. In the Roman Catholic system, this is transubstantiation, where the body and blood of Jesus, or the body and blood of the, excuse me, the the elements of the of the uh, communion are trans are are what's the word I want to use, uh, transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, the Mass is actually the cornerstone of Roman Catholic uh, Catholicism, it's a, and, it, and it's actually the grossest perversion of Scripture of anything that they do. The, the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of Christ, the significance of that, is all in God's eternal purpose for the world. This is why, I mean, everything that the world is created for it's all centered in Christ. And when you pervert that, you have missed it all. I mean, you, you've, you've just missed everything. So God put man on this earth to glorify him. And the greatest glory that God received is through the offering of Jesus Christ for our sins. But that magnificent display of God's glory, folks, is puked on by Roman Catholicism. Now, Christ's offering on the cross is a one-time sacrifice for sin. It satisfied God forever for everyone who believes. But Roman Catholics are not satisfied with the one-time sacrifice of Christ. So they sacrifice him over and over and over again. And they do that in the scheme for power and to perpetuate their control over the souls of men. Well, does the Mass come from Scripture? You ever see the apostles in the scriptures offering often sacrifices? You ever see that there? Uh, We don't have time to explore all of it, but we're going to look into just one side of this. And that's why do you think that statues of Mary are prominent in the Catholic Church? Did you know that Roman Catholicism teaches that all graces flow through Mary? And that includes the Eucharist. And did you know that they teach that the Mass was instituted by Jesus for Mary and through Mary and that she is a co-redeemer with Christ? Now I want to read something to you that's, that gives you the real picture of what Roman Catholics believe about Mary. And this is from the book Jesus, Our Eucharistic Love by Father Stefano Minnelli. 
The Holy Eucharist is the bread that comes from our Heavenly Mother. It is bread produced by Mary from the flour of her immaculate flesh, kneaded into dough with her virginal milk. St. Augustine wrote, Jesus took his flesh from the flesh of Mary. We know, too, that united to the divinity in the Eucharist, there is Jesus' body and blood taken from the body and blood of the Blessed Virgin. Therefore, at every Holy Communion we receive, it would be quite correct and a very beautiful thing to take notice of our Holy Mother's sweet and mysterious presence inseparably united with Jesus in this host. Jesus is always the Son she adores, He is flesh of her flesh and blood of her blood. If Adam could call Eve when she had been taken from his ribs, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, cannot the Holy Virgin Mary even more rightly call Jesus flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood? Taken from the intact virgin, as says St. Thomas Aquinas, the flesh of Jesus is the maternal flesh of Mary. The blood of Jesus is the maternal blood of Mary. Therefore, it will never be possible to separate Jesus from Mary. For this reason, at every Holy Mass which is celebrated, the Blessed Virgin can repeat with truth to Jesus and the host and in the chalice, You are my son today. I have generated you. And justly, St. Augustine teaches us that in the Eucharist, Mary extends and perpetuates her divine maternity, divine maternity, While St. Albert the Great exhorts with love, My soul, if you wish to experience intimacy with Mary, let yourself be carried between her arms and nourished with her blood. Go with this ineffable, chaste thought to the banquet of God, and you will find in the blood of the Son the nourishment of the mother. Now, who is prominent, most prominent in all of that? Jesus or Mary? Now, what it shows here is that Jesus owes more to Mary than he does to God the Father. Now, that's not really the main point that I was even going to get to. How does that tie with Babylon? Well, there's another interesting point here, and that's about the Mass itself. It is not a bloody sacrifice. Now, the Roman Catholic believes that the wafer and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Jesus, but as we know, there is no body, there is no blood. And so the Roman Catholics maintain that illusion and they do so because to do otherwise would offend their pagan goddess. Now, now here's where we go back then to the pagan practice. Now, don't forget this. Mary is the same as Semiramis. She's the same as Venus, Ishtar, whichever uh, part of history that you're talking about, depending on which goddesses are being worshipped. And a characteristic of the sacrifices that were made to those particular heathen goddesses is that they could not be bloody sacrifices. Now, for other gods, they might cut into a person and take out their heart and take the blood and offer it to their heathen gods, but not to these particular goddesses. So a sacrifice has to be made to Mary. She has to have a part, but you don't bring real blood and you don't bring real flesh. And so they fool people into believing that it is the real body and blood of Jesus, but the goddess actually knows the difference. She knows which, what it is. Now, in the Old Testament, what you have is gods like Molech and various gods that represent the sun. For instance, you go back to Egypt and the sun god is Ra. And Isis is the one who's the mother of all these different gods. And interestingly, what they do in the Mass is they cut out a little round wafer and they cut it out round like the sun. Now, much of that, if you're interested in this, is in 
Alexander Hislop's book, The the Two Babylons. And let me let me quote something from him. He says, Although the God whom Isis or Ceres brought forth, and who was offered to her under the symbol of the wafer or thin round cake as the bread of life, was in reality the fierce scorching sun or terrible Moloch, yet in that offering all his terror was veiled, and everything repulsive was cast into the shade. In the appointed symbol, he is offered up to the benignant mother who tempers judgment with mercy and to whom all spiritual blessings are ultimately referred. And blessed by that mother, he is given back to be feasted upon as the staff of life, as the nourishment of her worshippers' souls. Thus the mother was held up as the favorite deity. And thus also, and for an entirely similar reason, does the Madonna of Rome entirely eclipse her son, as the mother of grace and mercy. Thus the mother was held up as the favorite divinity. Well, we're going to look at this in, a, in the scriptures, a, a demonstration of the very thing that we're talking about right there, and that's in the book of Acts. And this is when Paul caused a riot in the city of, uh, of uh, Ephesus. And maybe you remember this, that, that uh, there was a goddess in this story. Her name is Diana. So you turn to Acts chapter 19. And here, Paul brought the whole city to an uproar because what he was preaching were there no, there was no such thing as these mythological gods that the Greeks worshipped. There was no such thing as a queen of heaven. And Diana, in uh, Greek mythology, was called the queen of heaven. Now, we're looking at this in Acts chapter 19, verse number 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Now, let, let, me, let me stop there for just a moment. What's going on is that these silversmiths that were in Ephesus, they were making little icons and little trinkets of the, of the temple that was in Ephesus. This was a magnificent temple. I mean, it was a wonder of the ancient world. And they were making these little icons of the temple at Ephesus and also of the goddess Diana. And when Paul began to preach that there are no such gods as those, then the people were being converted to Christianity and they stopped buying all the trinkets. And so the silversmiths began to get upset about this and they thought, well, we're going to lose our income if if Paul keeps preaching those things. And so they stirred up this riot in the city. In verse 27, he says, so that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at night, we're not only going to lose our income, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, Mary is the queen of heaven in the Roman Catholic system. And in the Greek system, it was Diana who was the queen of heaven. And both of them are favorite goddesses, aren't they? Both of them are favorite. Mary has her mass that we find in Roman Catholicism. Diana had her sacrifices in the temples of the Greeks. And so you really can't find much difference in the two except the name. So these are perversions of Catholicism. There are many, many more that we could talk about. They're not Christian. They're pagan. They're leftover religion from the Babylonian Empire. 
I mean, from just a few years after the flood, when Nimrod built that great tower to heaven and was worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all of that, to the time that Nebuchadnezzar built that image of himself and told the Hebrew children to bow down, till they built St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, until the time that the Antichrist in the tribulation erects an idol of himself and says, you must bow down to this idol, ecclesiastical Babylon has been rising. It's keep, it keeps rising. It's rising today. And it'll find its fulfillment in the empire of the Antichrist. And thank God for this, folks. One day, it is finally going to be destroyed forever. One day, it will be gone forever. And the world will be purged of Roman Catholicism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to spend together tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us understanding of. Help us, Lord, to bring the truth before your people. We, and, and we say these things again, not because we have a hatred for Roman Catholics. We want to see them saved. We want, we want them to have the truth. We want our people to be able to, to talk to Roman Catholics and show where that, where that religion comes from. It's not from the Holy Scriptures. Lord, bless our people. And help us to defend your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.